Direct-to-consumer retail has exploded in the last 10 years. You can spin up a site, find a manufacturer, and build a brand out of nothing. But where do you house your goods between when they're manufactured and when they're shipped to their final destination? My guest today, Kevin Gibbon, has spent the last decade of his career in this space and has developed a novel solution called Airhouse for finding your third party logistics provider, making it affordable and easy to manage for fast growing direct to consumer retail companies. We talk about all of it and how his last startup blew up and what he learned from it in this interview. Here is my conversation with Kevin Gibbon. Kevin, welcome to the show. I'm excited to be talking with you. Thanks so much for having me. We're in the age of direct-to-consumer e-commerce brands where you know someone can set up their Shopify site, find a, a producer on Alibaba or, or wherever it is that they get their goods and start to uh, fulfill. And if they're great at advertising on Facebook, if they're, they've got some big email newsletter, if they've got distribution digitally to get eyeballs and attention, they could potentially scale very quickly. And over the course of the last 20 years, we saw you know, Amazon Web Services make uh, software companies scale, no longer needing to have their own servers, but just use servers that someone else has put together. Airhouse is really premised on that same capability for fast growth with e-com being made possible not by servers, but by the warehouses and actual fulfillment centers that an e-commerce brand shipping physical things needs. You got it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, the problem that we saw is that it's a lot easier to start a brand. Uh, it's a lot easier to outsource manufacturing, even at scale today, than it ever has been before. Uh, globalization has really helped with that. Um, and there's so many different channels to reach customers. There's also remarketing is a huge one for a lot of these different brands. And so you see a lot of these, these entrepreneurs and these small brands that they're able to focus just on their product marketing. And I, th I saw that the, the biggest um, missing piece was like scaling up the fulfillment. And what fulfillment actually is, is that you're shipping, basically you have an order and you actually need to get a physical order product. You needed to get into the hands of the end customer. And there already is a massive industry around this. It's called a 3PL space. So third-party logistics, there's like 25,000 warehouses in the US. And what we saw was that it wasn't as easy to use them as it is to use all of these other services. So like Shopify, for example, or going and launching ad campaigns on Facebook or Instagram, or even outsourcing manufacturing uh, to work with a lot of these 3PLs. The, the best quality ones actually tend to be the ones that take the longest to work with. They have a lot of strict requirements. Their technology typically doesn't work with your technology stack. And there are some newer 3PLs that are better on the technology, but we actually found that their operations is just really terrible. And 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 I know this from personal experience. My last company, Ship SHYP, we we had our own warehouses. We were a consumer shipping company, um, but it's really hard, if not impossible, to be amazing at both the technology side and the actual logistics, like physical 
like having people on the floor, making sure that you have enough staff to get things out, making sure you're following that the brand's packaging procedures, being able to ship into a, a Walmart DC and adhere to all of their their guidelines for a B2B order. So we really saw that there was this 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 really big disconnect between the technology and the actual really amazing 3PLs out there. And so that's why we started Airhouse where we're like, okay, we could focus on the technology and we could create an amazing network of these really great established operating 3PLs. And we can make it as easy as AWS is, right? Like behind the scenes of AWS, they have their own data centers. They actually contract a lot to unknown data centers. But when you use them, you just enter in what basically services you want to use and they take care of all of the action. There's actually a lot of physical stuff that happens behind the scenes. And so we're very similar in that retrospect. We don't own any warehouses. We outsource all of the actual fulfillment, warehousing, storage um, to our partners. And we actually today, uh, as we're talking in this, this interview, what is it? It's December um, 2022. Uh, 20, um, and we have, uh, we're in about 40 countries um, and we have about 52 different warehouses across the globe that we can help you scale your brand globally. And so why, I guess, why has this been later to be solved? Because you, you articulated like, if I want a, a storefront, I can spin up Shopify. If I mm. want the Amazon web services, I have that solution. If I want to get you know a, a wide swath of potential manufacturers and make that legible, there's there's solutions to that problem. Why was this later in the life cycle of, I don't even know if you necessarily think about it as digitization or, or marketization or platformization, what, however, however you think about that. Yeah, it's definitely digitization plus a marketplace dynamic. I think that because you're, you're dealing with so many humans in this process, there's, there's just a lot of room for error. And this actually changes, can change on a monthly or quarterly basis. So we've even seen some of our partners that run very hi highly efficient uh, operations that they have a management changeover and then all, all of a sudden their, their quality kind of goes to shit. And so I think the network dynamic, and this is actually just like looking at what other brands have done over their course of their years. So think of like an Allbirds, for example, or a Casper. They, they would go and they today they probably have like, I don't know, 10 plus relationships with three, three PLs across the globe. Not only have they had to, had to actually implement into their WMS system, so that's our warehouse manager system, but they also have to manage them as well to make sure things go out. But actually along that journey, they probably went through, I would guess, probably another dozen 3PLs because it's when you're also a high growth brand, you may outgrow a warehouse, you may have different needs. So you may have B2B needs, and this is a D2C type of a warehouse. The management may start to underperform. They may actually bring in a bigger client, and then you actually don't get prioritized like you, you would have before. There's a lot of reasons that a network and a, a, and a marketplace dynamic actually makes a lot more sense versus just the digitization. But I think one, going back to your question, like why is this one of the last things to be really solved. And I think that it's not an area that a lot of people know a lot about. I think that there's a lot of operators um, in this space, as I mentioned, 25,000 of these warehouses. So it's it's a great like investment. There's a ton of owner operator 3PLs. There's also a lot of other PE based like uh, uh, 3PLs that have many different locations across the, the globe. 
but they're they're interested on the operation side that's where their knowledge really is and it's not on the technology side and i think where you haven't got a lot of entrepreneurs coming in from the technology side is that they frankly just don't know logistics and i kind of happened to fall into this space based on my previous company which was ship um and that we were basically trying to create like the uber for shipping and then i just learned a ton about this industry and it's like wow this is a gaping hole for consumers they're actually restricted on their growth because they have like a, a scaled brand like a Casper or Warwick Parker. They're having to spend probably about half their company dedicated to managing these 3PLs, engineering teams, to managing the different integration points, all of these different things to truly run a global brand. And I was just like, this doesn't need to happen. We can be that company to offer it to the brands getting started out now and then grow with them to when they do become the size of like a Warby Parker or Casper or those types of brands. And I guess then another part of the thought process is one way that you would, I don't want to say take, take advantage, but, 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 you know, capitalize on the opportunity to partner with these high growth uh, e-commerce brands is, Hey, you know, this is, this is an up and coming brand. We give them a little bit of space. We nurture them as they grow. They, they take more and more of our space. But at some point, there's like physical limitations. I've been in a, a few of these facilities, not anywhere near as many as you probably have, but yep. there's just physical realities, right? Like, you know, if Amazon wants to produce, wants to create more data centers, they go buy more data centers and it just continues to scale um, right. as they build those things out. But, you know, if you've got this facility, there's, you're up against either, you know, the next building or you're up against the, the walls that have been erected or however you want to frame it. And then you got to make a decision. And so what I'm hearing is that it's actually not uncommon for number one, you to diversify your, I don't know if risk is the right word, but kind of geographic distribution where you have, you know, they've got the Southwest, they've got the Northeast, they've got whatever, but also you don't have all of your inventory in one single distribution point. Once you hit a certain scale, you actually need a couple just to make sure that the, the lights are always on and the products always moving. Well, it really depends. And I definitely wouldn't say that the physical capacity is the big, biggest constraint for these 3PLs. I'd say it's their ability to operate a high quality operation. So what what is that? That means is like getting orders out on time and following the actual whichever packaging procedures that the brand needs. So if they need, they have custom boxes or something like that, that's something different that every single brand, usually do the DTC brands typically have. And then also making sure if they're, you're doing wholesale that you're getting things out on time. Like if you have a PO from, from Amazon or from, from Walmart, you don't ship it by a certain date, that PO goes away. And so you really need to have a level of operational excellence. So I'd say that, that I, a lot of people in this space thought that, it's around like, oh, you just, you partner with all these 3PLs and it's a capacity piece. It's like, there's just, you, you need to know who's got the most capacity. That's actually not the limitation. And, it, and it's relatively easy for a, a high quality 3PL to get more space if you have a great brand. And frankly, these brands don't need that much space. Like you're talking about the facilities that we work in. I think the largest one is like 2 million square feet. And like even a, a, a brand doing say like 10,000 orders a, a month probably needs like, 2000 square feet of of actual real estate for the for their their product so it's not the actual physical um constraint that's the problem it's the actual can you scale up my with my brand can you give me us the, the good enough service but then you do get into the point where it may make sense to 
especially if you have a heavy item like Casper, I think they're probably in like 15 different 3PLs in the US alone, because you just want to locate your goods as close to the customer to reduce that cost of shipping. And also you get faster shipping. But for a lot of brands, um, like if you're shipping something that's less than one pound, we recommend going to a single facility, especially if you have a lot of B2B shipping as well. So think of yourself, you have an order that's less than a pound. So it's not going to be a lot of extra money if you're shipping from uh, the East Coast or the West Coast and you're, you're trying to optimize all of those things. Re relatively within a dollar, it's going to be the same amount if you're in a central location within two, two locations. But then if you introduce wholesale, that means you've now split your inventory across two different locations. And when you get that massive PO that comes in, you may not be able to fulfill it. And then you just lose out in that PO, or you're going to have to try to actually fulfill it from two different locations with it, which just doesn't work. So I'd say that that, that is a concern for some brands. I'd say that the ones that are really scaling up, the ones that are trying to compete with Amazon, which is like Chewy is a great example. Like they're trying to get as fast of shipping as Amazon. So they're going to want to have all their products really close to the end customer. But mostly for these D2C brands, it's not a, they're not winning these customers because they, they have one to two day shipping. They don't need that. Um, they're, they're winning them because they have a differentiated product that, that, it, that people really want. And so people are willing to take, if you have a central location in the U.S. today, it's going to take at most three days to get it really anywhere in the country. So that difference between one to three days doesn't make sense. But if you do have a heavier item, you may be able to save a lot more money if you're in three different locations. So it's really brand specific. And that's why we've taken the approach of like, let's have like, let's go deeper with partners. So in the US, like, we probably go deep with like 10 different warehouses versus going really wide and, and having a hundred or a few hundred. We go deep with them, make sure that that we, we also have people on the ground that actually will manage them on behalf of our brands. But the optimization problem for these brands and who they're actually competing against, they're not competing against Amazon. They're truly not. They're competing against the, the other cool product that you're going to buy. They saw you on Instagram or somebody, one of your friends told you about this product or something like that. You had to have it and you're willing to wait that extra time. Well, I, where, I will say that the network does come into um, play even more is globally. So this is actually just something that we just started off of, uh, started it off doing, expanding globally. And this changes the game completely. This is you're you're selling, so you're, you're probably advertising on Instagram or whatever whatever social channel to get these or TikTok or whatever get these customers. You have advertising that's working in the U.S. You have really cheap and and no duty shipping to the U.S. But if you if you have customers that you want to sell into the U.K. or Australia or in the EU or in Asia or something like that you're having to pay a lot of money um, for it to go from the US into one of these different countries. So we're talking about like $40, let's say on like a two to three pound item. And so that actually changes the, the, the dynamics completely because now your cost of goods sold went down from say five or $8 to ship out of the US to a US customer. Now it's increased to $40. And so if you can now locate your goods inside the UK or EU and you're shipping locally from those countries, you're able to open up entire new markets. And we even that that's kind of one of our big pushes. It's like you have a lot of these brands They're they're typically like niche. I don't want to say niche because that means it sounds small. But like if you think of the your the uh, your audience is potentially global, 
you could have a very niche product that you are you could build a hundred million dollar brand off of and so i think that this is actually a really underutilized thing that people to locate their goods internationally and ship locally because then you're able to get your cost of goods sold way down and now you're able to spin up advertising on instagram and facebook and all that in all these other countries and you could focus on your go-to-market because you're not paying all that extra money on shipping plus also if you ship into any of these countries the the end customer has to pay duties and you're importing it on an on an each basis versus doing it in a bulk way so i think that's like an, an area that if I'm starting a brand, I'm I'm going internationally a lot sooner than I than than brands do today. And before us, like <clears throat> it would take like one to two years to to start like like getting those relationships with those three PLs. You have to you have to basically recreate what we've created at Airhouse. You have to integrate with new three PLs. You have to try to figure out who's the best. And we just want to do all of that upfront for you and just have this network of vetted 3PLs. And what I mean by vetted is like, we actually have customers that are using them. We know which ones are best for what type of product. And this is just something that you as an individual brand are just kind of guessing. You're talking and going through the sales presentation and everything's the same. They all say all the same things. And so with us, it's like, no, we actually have brands that are using them. And then if anything does go wrong, you come to us. You don't need, you don't go to the brand. We'll take responsibility. And if things do go like terribly wrong, we'll move you to another one of our partners within our network at no cost to you. And I've seen something similar with commercial real estate, where if you've never bought commercial real estate before or not bought, rented, uh, leased, you know, an office space for your company, there's folks that are like, hey, I actually like do this all the time. I can help you navigate the process. And all I do is negotiate on behalf of right. the folks looking for it. And I don't have this kind of like two-way relationship, which you have to be concerned about when you know that you're the least informed character uh, playing the game. Um, can you talk about the, the specifically the business model for these three PLs? Like, I think a lot of folks will understand, Hey, a manufacturing facility, they're charging you X per widget, X per, you know, output. And at the other end of the spectrum, you know, the retailer is, you know, charging their markup on your good when it gets sold. And you're hoping that your margin's still existing there. Is the three PL a similar model? What's the difference? It's probably per item shipped is my guest, you know, multiplied by weight, but how can we think about that? Yeah, so it, it's you pay for storage. So like, how many pallets are you storing monthly? Um, and then you'll pay for pick, pack, and shipping. So it'll be based on uh, on an order basis. So how many units are, are going, and how big are these units going into a single order? And then you'll pay the shipping on that. So are you sending through UPS or DHL or Royal Mail or whatever? You'll pay those things. It's a pretty very simple transactional business model. Got it. And then so your framework for you know finding these partners how is your business building revenue uh by kind of sourcing these clients and bringing them to the 3pls so um it started off really uh simple so uh and and, and always the risk I, I always look to like especially from my last company like try to de-risk the biggest biggest parts of this business the the biggest risk that the business had is that can we essentially outsource the most important piece which is the fulfillment to other par partners and and be as good if not better than if you went direct and so we started off very small we started off we actually bought our own ddc brand we went and we went through the same process and we we just pretended we were a warrior brand and we wanted to get 3pl services and then we started to build our platform on top of that first 3pl it turns out to be that was one of the shittiest 3pls out there and we, we had no idea and also like 
my, my last company, like we had six different uh, warehouses I ran, essentially three PLs. Like I built these things before. And that's another thing that you don't know. You don't know what you're going to get until you actually get it. Like you may do a warehouse tour and it looks great and all this, but you don't know how good the management teams actually are and do you start using them. So we started with a single 3PL and then we just got more customers and added them to our account. And then we churned through the, that first 3PL, got more 3PLs. And then when we had enough liquidity, um, then we were basically now, now we're pitching what we're actually bringing to like, now I, I consider ourselves in like the mid-market 3PL space. So now we're working with 3PLs that are doing between like, 200 to 500 million dollars in gross revenue a, a year um but it was kind of that stepping place to, to get to to where we're at um and and it was really really tough um how we make money is is pretty simple and i think it's important for you to understand at any company how they actually make money and like we also knew that we even if we had a great service great technology this is something that's like very expensive to to companies it's probably the number one or number two cost of goods sold for these brands is the actual fulfillment outside of their manufacturing um, or advertising and so we knew that we couldn't add a, a big premium but the great thing and i learned this from my last business is that in logistics there's like just these economies of scale that happen so you're able to negotiate very very favorable rates when you are bringing millions of shipments to these shipping carriers. And the same thing goes with the 3PLs. And also from the 3PL side, um, we, we actually, instead of them having to work with hundreds or thousands of different individual brands, which especially on the early side, that there's a, a lot of customer service that goes into it. They work with us. And then on the back end, we actually work to remove those emails that go back and forth and automate a lot of those things. So we actually take a lot of costs out of the system. But essentially, we're able to offer the same price if you went directly to a 3PL yourself. So say you magically chose a high-performing 3PL and you're happy with it um, versus going to us, um, it'd be the same price, basically. And then we make our money on economies of scale that we've negotiated with the shipping carriers and also the 3PLs. And so we take a very small percentage of that transaction. Very similar to how a Stripe-like service works. It's like, It's just that we're... We, we don't have all the infrastructure. We don't have warehouses. We don't have to scale up employees. We don't have to worry about that thing. We, we scale our technology and, and that scales exponentially. And so we can just make a very small margin on the actual transaction itself. And so you've referenced your past company a couple of times. Uh, yeah. Ship raised about uh, $60 million or so. Uh, it didn't end up working out. I'm curious on, on two specific questions. The first is... Um, you know, raising venture capital, it has all, it, it, you can throw that out to the, the minnows on Twitter and get all sorts of different um, opinions. Um, how has that informed the way that you have thought about the capital structure of Airhouse? So I think that you should take venture capital if you are building something really large. You, you have to understand what, what the industry is doing. What, what the venture as an asset class is really doing is that they're taking bets that you will be an outlier. They, they basically have probably about 10% of their portfolio that returns 90% of the, what, what they actually are looking to return to their investors, their LPs. And so you need to be building a business that you think can can be one of the, the market leaders. Um, and you also need to be able to scale it like that as well. That was something. And so I'll talk a little bit about, about SHIP um, now, I guess, would be a great time. So 
we 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 were kind of this is in 2014 or 2015 um we were riding off of the the uber ofs everything um and i was at a background when i was a college as an ebay power seller and i was just like I understand the shipping. There was a big shipping problem there. It's like, oh, it's like, how how do you get your your goods into the hands of the, the shipping carriers? At that time, I'm actually Canadian, so like, I would be standing in line at like the post office, and it was just a terrible experience. And it was the biggest bottleneck of, of my business. And I was just like, why isn't there like an Uber like service like that? Like FedEx and UPS, while they do get your 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 goods anywhere in the world, it's really hard to like get the get the data into their system do you print labels out like is do people don't have printers anymore there, there should be like a consumer version and so i kind of r- rode the uber for everything wave and we were able to get a lot of hype um and how the service worked it, w- it would be an app you would take what a picture or whatever you wanted to ship um we would come to you so we had our own couriers they actually had employees we had our own bands um and then we had our own warehouses as well so we operated it in in five different cities or six different cities at, at the at the kind of top um and it was a very physical operations business and at that i was a very that was, this is my first venture backed business and you kind of think that it's like wow uber scaling so so big and that's a very similar type of product right it's, it's mostly technology and you 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 have these like we started with independent contractors as well and you could scale up and it turned out to be not the same like having warehouses and having to scale that side of the business in my opinion is not a venture back whole business you're going to get to a point where um so why ship actually so ultimately it failed and not because we didn't have amazing product that people loved but we actually just there's just not enough consumers to in in every single market to make it a profitable business because we had so much overhead we had warehouses we had employees um we did make money off of the shipping margins we make we made good margins on on a unit level but taking into account all the extra things that we had we actually when we raised all that money we were gross margin negative which i would never recommend anybody scale anything when you're gross margin negative that's like literally means every single item that we ship we lost money on you cannot do that uh, in any business venture business or bootstrap business or anything um, tell that to doordash uh yeah <laughs> I, I think that they actually did have some markets that that they had positive economics on so it's different when you're launching a city versus like if you have some proof that ship i just don't believe that we could have actually made it if if we could have we would have ran into the wall that like scaling up uh operations and warehouses and everything like as the numbers get bigger and bigger like you'd have to be launching 20 new markets this year then 40 new markets then then 80 new markets to to keep up with that those venture uh type returns which like a venture back company early days you probably want to grow two to three hundred percent year over year um and then eventually like right be ideally right before you're public like you should still be growing like 80 80 to 100 percent year on year off of hundreds of millions of dollars and so that was not a venture backable business looking back at it i thought it was our investors thought it was there was a ton of hype around this uber uberization of everything but it turned out like having warehouses was just it's not a venture backable business and so that's where i i we just knew so much about the industry and then warehousing and wms systems and all these things and found a lot of brands that had these this pain points going into airhouse 
And I was like, okay, there's there's an opportunity that we don't have to actually own these warehouses. We could focus on it's gonna take some time. Like our biggest like to de-risk the 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 whole business was like, can we get enough warehouses that can actually provide the same or better quality than people going direct? And that was and I knew if we could do that and we could scale that, that's a very scalable like a venture backable business like for us to go and get a new partner and get potentially millions of different square feet that they're already operating it's going to take me probably about six months and so like that that scales very quickly and if we wanted to go faster we could hire a team and partner with everybody in around the world and so that is a venture backable business and just thinking about like how big the fulfillment industry is, like it's 50, $55 billion just in the DTC category alone, excluding Amazon and all those other people. Globally, it's even bigger. And so if you can be a, a, a top performer there, that that you can get venture um, type outcomes, but you should only be taking venture if you truly believe that you can. That's where I think a lot of people will get mistakes. They, they think that venture is just this way of taking an investment. I think that that D2C brands, that's actually an example of a lot of the times they shouldn't be taking uh, venture. They should be taking maybe some angel money, maybe like a series A. So maybe up to, up to like $10 million, but it's really hard to have a breakout in a D2C brand. You know, you could have amazing companies, you could bootstrap companies, they could be extremely profitable, you could be doing billions in revenue. But because DDC brands, the 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 competition that you have out there, it's just really tough to continue to keep up with those growth rates as you continue scaling. Where with us, we definitely do have some defensibility in the network type of dynamics that we have and also the technology. And it's it's frankly, it's taken us now we're at four and a half years and, and we're, we're now expanding globally. It's, it's actually taken a long time to get here, but you really need to look at like what type of business you're creating, what type of outcome do you think that you're going after should really dictate what type of investment you should should be taking on. And that that was a big learning for me. That's a ton of context. That's really helpful. A lot of people will not have the opportunity to even go through that. So that's really helpful for folks, Kevin. It was my very second, painful to go through. <laughs> I, I believe it. And, and my second question on that topic what is, is kind of aimed more at the personal level. And there is a degree to which um, I think that a lot of good entrepreneurs will put like undo or maybe not undo the entirety of responsibility onto their shoulders, rightly or wrongly. And the, the, the pain of that, the, the, the tough part about that is it can be painful. Uh, it can lead to you know, self-doubt and, and all sorts of negative self-talk. The positive side is that if you can take a failure and you know, do a, a decent after-action report, look at yourself and say, this was the shortcoming in my game that led to th the failure that occurred, it can turn you into something even greater. And there's a reason right. that a lot of you know venture firms will invest in that yeah. once failed founder because they're like, hey, you've got the battle scars now. You're not going to make yeah. those mistakes again, most likely. So I'm curious at a very personal level for Kevin, what are you what what have you developed as an entrepreneur now on this go-around with Airhouse that you didn't have with ship that's making you a better operator, leader, and entrepreneur? I think it's it's just a lot of experience, and I think that one of the traits that every like entrepreneur has to have is perseverance. Perseverance is that when tough, when times get tough, you need to continue like pushing through. 
and that's also why like i i really i truly want like what what is driving me to do any of this stuff i love just creating products i love solving customers pain, pain points and also i i really want to build a really big and meaningful business and so that's what really drives me but what i took from ship was all of the different learnings and i also um in ship we we became one of the hottest companies in silicon valley um and that i think was pretty negative for me at the time and so I thought that like my ego got like out of control and uh, because we were looked upon as the next Uber and like I had uh, uh, like John Doerr, um, uh, the famous uh, venture capitalist from Kleiner, he was on our board and telling um, other people that I'm like the next Jeff Bezos and like it got to that level. And so that was really negative. So I, th I think that if Ship somehow was going to be successful, I think it would have been uh, a negative thing for me personally. So I'm, I'm grateful personally. Um, I'm not grateful for the investors or the employees, the ship that we ultimately failed. But personally, I think that you learn way more from failure than you do from success. So I'm trying to just take all of those different learnings and apply them to Airhouse um, in all the different areas that I, I possibly can. And I think you met, when you were first, first uh, pieces in that, in that question maybe was, yeah, putting like, should you be putting everything on your shoulders? Um, is, so for one thing, like early days, you, unfortunately you have to, like you, you have to have like, and also this is, it's not all on my sh shoulders. Like I started this company with my co-founder, Sarah, Sarah worked for me at ship and she's just an, an unbelievable, um, uh, uh sales and, and marketer. And so that's one of the areas that, that I am probably not as strong on, nor do I want to go deeper in that area. I'm a, I'm a fine salesperson, but I, I would much rather be building the products and, and dealing with all of those other things. So we, we found a really great partnership there. So, but between us, um, like, yeah, in the early days, unfortunately, like everything rides on you because there's nothing, there's literally nothing. You have no employees, all of that. I think that as you continue scaling the company, you definitely do need to delegate more. I, I do see this in a lot of um, founders that they're not able to make the transition from doing everything yourself, which you have to do in the early days to then scaling a management team beside you. I think that I was pretty lucky. Like we did get to, to a pretty decent amount of scale like at ship. We had hundreds of employees. I don't think that I had a, a tough time delegating responsibilities. I think actually I delegated a little bit too much. I think I, that was one of the lessons that I should have actually uh, taken on a lot more personal ownership of different areas until we did figure out a lot of those different things. And then you bring in professional operators to really own that area and scale what, what you've probably created. Um, but that is like one of the, the, the reasons some companies, they, they don't make it out because they want to scale it and they're not willing to give up control and also hire people better than them in certain areas. Um, and that that is a real big problem area that a lot of entrepreneurs face. So I don't think I face that, that chip, but I definitely do respect that um and any any lessons i would learn there is that actually doing more early uh, for as long as you can uh, I, uh that that's actually something you should do but then when you get to the point where you figured it out so what does that mean like so you you figured it out so between me and sarah like we figured out the sales motion on how to sell to a certain type of brand 
okay, we should be doing that. We shouldn't be hiring a VP sales that, that we're like, okay, we have this product, go and sell it. Like, I think the founders really need to like recreate that initial playbook of whatever that is, building the product, your go, your go to market, your, your sales, your operations, all of those th different things. You need to really feel that pain and, and, and create that whatever that, that thing is in a very small way. But then you should be willing to then hire amazing operators to scale that. Um, so that that was definitely another lesson that that I've taken um, to to Arrowhouse is to should try to pull more of those things in and not outsource too early. But I see more of of the other people are not able to outsource it to other leaders and they think that they should be doing everything and that you just don't get anywhere. You can't do everybody's job. You just can't do it. Yeah, it's it's a delicate balancing act because you know there's certain things that my company's admittedly much smaller, I've, I've found easier to delegate. And then the things that you're like, I've actually, I really get this. Like I, I need to hold on tight to it. And so it's a, a constant balancing act. I am uh, glad that you've gotten back on the beam uh, and continue to take steps forward. Kevin, before we ask our standard last two questions, was there anything else you were hoping to share today that I didn't give you a chance to? I would share, actually, this is, this is, this is probably one of the, the biggest, um, uh, problems and also opportunities that we're we're finding so any anybody that's listening that's looking to scale brands um they they still do look at fulfillment as like part of one of their their, their core differentiations so it's to me looking at some brands even having their own warehouses and then also with us looking at us as kind of a middleman and they want to work directly with the 3pl i, I would definitely uh, encourage people, and this obviously in bias, and this is a this is a sales pitch to anybody listening out there that you should be going and outsourcing everything that is not your differentiation, and that should be in a brand. If you're selling physical products, it should be your product and marketing, and you should outsource absolutely everything else. And that's why I think that people should work with Airhouse. This is all we do. We go, we evaluate different 3PLs through our other customers. So this is, you could be the, you could have created FBA, right? You, you, you could have created massive 3PLs and you still don't know what you're actually going to get until you get it. And so the network um, type dynamics to working with a company like Airhouse is that we already have brands that are using this. And it's very similar. And this is the hump that we're trying to get over. Like we're going up market. So we're working with brands that are doing now $50 million. Now we're trying to work with brands doing $100 million. And we're trying to sell into their companies. And they're just like, they're like, this is the way that we've done it before. And, and I think of it, it's a, a lot like how AWS started. It was like, if you remember back in the days, like you had to, it, you, you had your own data centers if you were a tech company and then you outsourced the next stage of abstraction was like a rack space is like you could actually rent computers at a, at a, at a, where, or at a warehouse somewhere but you had to provision everything else and then they came to aws another abstraction layer and then snowflake another abstraction layer i think in this industry what we're having the hardest problem breaking through is that they're not willing to give up that control where it's like this is all we fucking do like this is all like kind of like my background, I know this industry better than most. And like, you should not be doing this yourself. If you work with a 3PL directly, you're probably going to have to work around their probably inadequate technology, or you're going to go through growing pains with them or whatever. You should really work with somebody like Airhouse and, and, and focus on what the stuff that really truly matters. And then also going global early. You should focus on a niche, a niche audience, 
get your advertising super tight and then go global versus trying to go broad and compete just in the US. The US is just crazy with competition. You should be going global much earlier. And we can help out with that. Right on. I mean, it's it's taking me down another rabbit hole. We probably don't have time to go down, but it kind of reminds me of Rippling and Parker Conrad, who's yeah, also on exactly. his second company. And his their whole solution is your entire HR system is managed. And I actually went through one of their pitches because we were evaluating it. And they're like, we have the data to prove that you will need to hire less people yes. if you use our, our, our platform. And if you're saying that these, you know, e-com companies are, you know, using this much of their resources to just manage fulfillment and they it's can get that at effectively a discounted rate because of the technology you guys have, that's a, that's a pretty compelling pitch. Yeah, it's, it's the exact same. I'd say it's even bigger because an HR department in a company is probably going to be what 5% of your staff. Like we're seeing, like if you were scaling a brand, you're going to be you, probably about half of your company is going to be dedicated to managing these, even if you're outsourcing the 3PLs, managing the 3PLs and even engineering to build into these systems. Like you should not do that. Get half of your company back, spend it on the things that actually differentiate yourself. Right on. Uh, if folks want to learn more about you and Airhouse, Kevin, what digital coordinates can we point them towards? Uh, my Twitter, uh, which is my my name, uh, uh, Kevin Gibbon, K-E-V-I-N-G-I-B-B-O-N. And actually, I just started uh, a podcast with um, three other second and third time founders where we kind of just talk about the daily tech news, uh, but we kind of uh, introduce a lot of our learnings um, through that. And I just, I, I love hearing news. And I think that um, second, and we're all second time venture um, entrepreneurs. So we have a unique perspective on like going through a lot of these things. So if anybody is interested in learning how to do that or some of the, the failures, and we have some pretty good banter on there, it's pretty uh, entertaining. Um, uh, you check us out. It's called Second Time Founders. Um, and you could see it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, all your different podcasting um, channels. Right on. Well, uh, we're going to link all that in the show notes for people uh, to find. It is in the app. We're probably listening to this or at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. But before I let you go, Kevin, I would like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. An actionable thing is that whatever you, whatever your, your goals are, whatever you're wanting to do, go and do them today de-risk yourself as much as you possibly can. So does that mean moving to a major city that is the epicenter for uh, uh, the industry that you want to break into? You should go do it. Um, I think that there's just so many people that are just slow, so slow to, they have all these grand plans. And the difference between people who actually are successful are the ones that take those big, big risks and leap, leaps. I did, so I'm from Canada. One of the major big leaps that I did, I just, after I had a very small startup in, in Canada, it failed. I was like, I've been, I was in San Francisco for a couple of weeks. I'm like, this is where it's all happening. I moved all my stuff within like a month. And I was like, I, I started working for other companies. Um, and I was like, that completely changed my life. So whatever is the thing that's holding you back and you're like, oh, I should do this thing, but I'm not going to do that until this, this, and this happens. Go do it now. There's, there's the, what you should be doing is taking action and taking control on whatever you want to see in your life. 
I love it. And I would also argue that even the small actions in that direction can build totally. momentum. So if you're like, man, I'm not ready to, to do the, the huge thing, decisive micro wins, you get the momentum, the dopamine starts firing, and then that's where the confidence and the, and the actual big action comes from. Totally agree. Beautiful. Kevin, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I yeah. really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks so much, Aaron. We just went deep with Kevin Gibbon. Everyone out there has a fantastic day. Thanks for listening to the end of my interview with Kevin. If you enjoyed it, you'd also enjoy hearing our interview with Christy Knischel. Christy took her family third-party logistics company from less than $2 million in revenue to an $80 million plus 3PL player. She also did it as one of the very few women in a male-dominated industry. We talk about it all and her commitment to customer service. Go check out that interview.